You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a physician and editor-in-chief of Maine, Maine Home Design, Old Port, Ageless, and Moxie Magazines. Love, Maine Radio show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com, grownupgirl.com, where you can get personalized guidance and encouragement for growing a simple yet vibrant life through free advice, workshops, and mentoring programs with local experts. You deserve to shine. Go to grownupgirl.com now to learn about our available programs and classes designed just for you in the Portland area. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port, 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the works of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where everybody is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Christy Gardner is a retired Army veteran who was injured overseas in 2006. After recovering from a brain injury, she is now the co-captain of the U.S. women's para ice hockey team. Thanks for coming in today. You're very welcome. And also thanks to Moxie, who is um, your companion dog, who is taking a little nap in the corner now. Right. Patiently waiting. Patiently waiting, yeah. <laughs> well, she was the star of the show a few minutes ago. Everybody here in the office was pretty excited to see her. Yeah, they were joking about getting an office dog, so I might have to bring a puppy next time. Yeah, you may have to. Do you find that that's often the case, that, you know, sh- that she shows up on the scene and everybody It's just... very hit or miss. Um, a lot of people love dogs and gravitate right to her. And, you know, I went to visit my sister at college when she was a freshman, and the football players are the first floor in the dorm, and you had to walk through their wing, and you get, like, this 300-pound linebacker that comes out, and they're like, oh, my God, a puppy! And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, you think these big macho guys, but they still, everybody loves dogs. So... Do you ever encounter situations where people are a little concerned or? I wouldn't say concerned. Um, maybe some, some fearful, especially with the larger refugee population. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them, the only dogs they've been exposed to were dirty or vicious, whether it's guard dogs at refugee camps or um, just stray dogs and stuff like that. That's interesting. I wasn't I wasn't expecting that answer. I was thinking about just like small children who are concerned about big dogs, but that makes a lot of sense that that people who have had negative experiences would be really kind of a little shy. Yeah, that's usually more the reaction we get, especially because I live in Lewiston. Um, Some of the folks have been really good at adapting, but some of them, you can't blame them for being afraid. Now, you're doing something very interesting um, with ice hockey. Is this something that you had have played all your life? Absolutely not. Um, I've been an athlete all my life, and I always wanted to play hockey. But when I was growing up, like middle school age and stuff, my parents were really worried that I'd get hurt playing hockey. So we kind of figure I'm already beyond that point, so I might as well now. Well, I guess, talk to me about that. You, you've had this, you were injured in 2006. That's, that really shifted your life dramatically. Yeah, I was injured in the summer of 06 overseas. And when I met with the poly trauma team at the hospital, basically they said that um, there were so many things I would never do again. They labeled me 100% disabled and severely handicapped. And from then on, it was a battle for a number of years. It's, I spent three years in physical therapy, three and a half years in speech therapy. 
Uh, I still talk with a lisp and stutter sometimes, but it's not bad as long as I'm not tired. You know, finding word choice and things like that is is occasionally a struggle. Obviously, my balance is a struggle now because I'm a bilateral amputee. So, and I was reading about um, I was reading about you, and from what I'm understanding, it's not entirely clear what happened that caused this injury. Um, we know what happened, but it's not something I can openly talk about. Oh, okay. So, okay. Well, yeah. it was overseas on a peacekeeping mission. So how how did that how did that impact you to go to be in the middle of something that you were voluntarily there for, and then wake up and be have your life completely changed? We, we sign up the the military, the army right now is a volunteer force, so we all sort of know what we're getting into and what the risks are, but. For the most part, you, you expect it not to happen to you. You know, that it's, a, it's a slim chance that your life's going to be catastrophically changed. Unfortunately, that slim chance was mine. So um, I don't think anybody else on our trip got particularly injured. I know a couple guys got like a broken wrist or concussion here and there. But, you know, obviously I think I was the most significantly injured on that adventure. So how do you feel the services are for people who have had this type of traumatic injury? I mean, I, from, I've, as a doctor, I've worked with people who are part of the VA system, and I believe that that has really dramatically improved over the years. But I'm wondering from your perspective, as somebody who really heavily used these services for a number of years, how do you feel? Um, I still encourage people to join. One of my friends is almost done with her AIT right now in the Army, and she's going to be stationed with an airborne division in Alaska that might deploy soon and like I said we know the risks we know what we're getting into but it's an amazing way of life the camaraderie and brotherhood in the service is unreal and then even after that getting hurt um, the support among other veterans is amazing the support among a lot of our programs is fantastic I mean you'll get again hit or miss um, you might have an ama- my primary care doc is amazing Every time I'm like, hey, doc, I probably broke this. You know, hey, doc, what about this? He's like, all right, what else can we nip in the butt while you're here that's nagging or whatever or before it comes nagging? But then, of course, you get other people. It's like a battle to get an appointment and services are delayed or you've got to fight for what equipment you need. Um, so it's very, it depends a lot on the people who are there who are passionate about their job. And I think you find that almost anywhere in life. And how about... Um I guess the need for better services who for people who have lost limbs. I mean, that's such a dramatic change. Yeah. How are we doing with that? We're doing okay. Um, I think that it's harder in Maine because we have such an older population or an older veteran population. There are very few veterans my age group at the VA. There are very few females my age group at the VA or females in general. So going up to physical therapy, coming off bilateral leg amputations, they basically had me walk back and forth for 20 minutes with a TheraBand around my ankles and said, okay, you're good. And I was like, oh, you're kidding, right? Did I come all the way here for this? I'm an athlete. I was in the army and I met the male PT standards because I never wanted anybody to look at me and say, you're only here because you're a girl or whatever. I always wanted to be the best I could. So to come home and be injured, I still want to push those limits. You know, at least it doesn't hurt now when I stub my toe. Why can't I jump around more? Why did you decide to join the military in the first place? And why be a military police officer? Um, I don't know. I guess I've always just been driven. I like to be outdoors and active. And I really don't sit still well to get at all. So an office job is not for me. 
Um, but my grandfather and my uncles were in the Marines. I had a couple cousins that joined the, Ar- the Navy about the same time I joined the Army. So it's kind of a family thing. A lot of us have served. It just seemed like a great career option to me. I mean, they do take good care of us, including apparel. You know, you get issued what you're going to wear. You get issued a place to live. You get issued everything you need. So there's not really a whole lot to worry about other than to do your job. And what was it about being in the military police that appealed to you? Just that outdoor active thing. The other offers they gave me were like nurse or admin or, you know, reception type jobs. And it's just sitting still like that is just not for me. So I figured at least being a military police is similar to being regular police. You're foot patrolling, you're checking buildings, clearing houses, responding to calls. So it's a much more active job. It also seems like it would require some certain amount of bravery. I mean, you're, you're not only did you volunteer to show up for the military, but you also went into a particularly dangerous part of the military. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I mean, I'll, uh, we never get calls to come to parties, that's for sure. So it's more like if, if someone's in crisis, somebody's life depends on you, or a whole group of people's lives. You know, if we're, we're manning a security checkpoint, it's for a reason to make sure that all of our people that come through stay safe. And I wanted to be able to help ensure that. I never wanted to have to worry for people. I wanted them to be able to do their job safely while I had their back. How have your how have your parents responded to this change in your life? <laughs> I'm just thinking about my my I have brothers and sisters who have all been in the military and I we had at one time three or four serving in the Middle East and when my when they all came back, my mother breathed a huge sigh of relief and if that had been different, I know that that would have really impacted her significantly. Yeah, I do believe it was harder on my parents than it was on me. I know that my dad cried about it when I lost my legs and that really, really bothered him. Um, I actually lost two fingers early in my career and um, that was a bigger deal to my mom. You know, losing my pinky was a really big deal to her. She said, because her baby wasn't whole anymore. You know, as a parent, you wanna be there to protect your child and she couldn't, so it really, really bothered her a lot. Um, I think now that I'm as active as I am, it doesn't bother her nearly as much. Uh, They had the opportunity, my mom and um, some family, to come out and watch me run last summer. So I was able to sprint and set a couple records that way and and just to excel athletically now. And so for them, it's, it's been good to see me thrive again. Well, tell me about that. I mean, as somebody who has always been an athlete, how did you need to shift your mindset in order to continue to be an athlete? It was really hard at first. The first few years um, after I met with the doctors, they had gone through a three-page list of stuff they said I'd never do again. You know, ride a bike, live alone, bathe alone. I wasn't allowed to swim because if I had a seizure, I'd drown and that kind of stuff. Um, So I was really limited, and I kind of believed the doctors that those were my limitations and that was going to be my life now. And then this other veteran kept bugging me at the hospital. It's an older gentleman um, with a service dog, and we kind of met because of the dogs. And he kept saying, come to this thing with me, come to this thing with me. And it was all these sports events. And I was like, they just told me I'd never do any of that again. I don't want to come watch somebody else do it. And finally, I said, you know, like, if I come with you, will you shut up and stop bothering me? Of course, he said yes. So I went, and it turned out it was all these disabled veterans that were water skiing and kayaking and being active outdoors again. And that was a major turning point for me. From then on, it was kind of like, well, let's 
you know, we broke that limit. Let's challenge the rest of them and see where I end up. So basically I've broken every barrier they set for me at the hospital. I'll never wiggle my toes, but it's not really a big deal. What was the first thing that you embarked upon? Was it the running? Was it the, what was the first athletic um, endeavor? Water skiing. (laughs) So I'm not supposed to be in the water or be active. And why not be active on the water? So yeah, I got up. Um, They had a boom off the side of the boat and they had me hold on to that. And right off the first try, up we went. Did you water ski before? No, never. So you went from doing something that you had never done before to taking on this new activity with a body that you had shifted in your life. That must have felt kind of weird. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I mean, especially because the doctors and everyone had said, you'll never do this, you'll never do that, you'll never do this. And then right away it was like, bam, success on the first try. So it really kind of set the tone from there. So why do you think that you... And I don't know that you can even know this, but why do you think that the that you got this list in the first place? Why? Where did this come from? Is this their experience based on other veterans who have gone through similar circumstances? I'm not sure if it's based on what they've seen in the results of others or if it's based on their own assumptions. Because I've met so many people since then that said doctors told them they'd never do this, that, or the other thing as well. And here they are doing it. I think it's a big problem in our medical community that they assume that because it won't be done exactly the same way that you can't do it. Um, I took a kid out and got him on the ice the other day. He had bone cancer in his leg and they told him he'll never play hockey again. Granted, we put him in a sled, but sled hockey's still hockey. It's full contact and it's a heck of a lot of fun. So why did you have to dash a kid's dreams? You know, I wish people would think of that more when they talk to others. Well, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about a story that I wrote about Maine Adaptive. And Maine Adaptive not only gets people of all ages and all abilities up on skis, but they are having, they're out biking, they're mm-hmm. out paddling, and they really are the, the whole full gamut of activities. And I applied to Maine Adaptive, and you need the doctor's note, and the doctor said, no, it's too dangerous. Because at the time, I had done limb salvage, and I didn't have full sensation in my feet. And he's like, well, what if your feet get cold? What about this? What about that? I'm like, they do this stuff all the time. They probably know how to handle it. But everyone is so afraid of it that they don't want to push the limit and see what's possible. I worked, I don't know if you've heard of VAST. It's a um, Veterans Adaptive Sports and Training at Pineland and New Gloucester. It's an awesome program. It's outdoors as usual. Um, Cross-country skiing, snowshoeing, biathlon. They do like cycling programs and stuff like that. And I helped them with a biathlon camp. We brought wounded warriors up from Walter Reed. And there was a gentleman in a sit-ski, a younger guy, and he was going really fast. And they're like, dude, you need to slow down. You might crash. Or you might crash. Not you're gonna. You might. And he's like, are you kidding? I've been blown up twice. I don't care if I fall over in the snow. You know? It wasn't from a sit-ski. You're literally like 12 to 18 inches off the floor for for cross-country. And everyone was so worried that he was going to fall. And he's like, are you really kidding me right now? Like, if you've seen what I've been through, this is so minor. And I wish more people would take that perspective. So why are we so, why, why is our approach so delicate? I have no idea. I think everyone's afraid of stepping on anybody's toes or if you said, yes, go do this thing and then I got hurt and then you'd feel either guilty or liable. Everyone's afraid of getting sued, stuff like that. So they tell you don't do it just to, bu- to avoid the risk. What would you have liked to have heard? Oh God anything about adaptive sports. I didn't even know they existed. 
and they basically just told my my life is over. I'm no, I'll never be active again. To an active person, I, that baffles me. Like, how do people? I don't know. I just don't know. I worked as a, I interned as a rec therapist at the VA because I went back on my GI Bill and got certified for adaptive sports. And I was working at the hospital and I had my credentials on once when I went to an appointment and the practitioner said, oh, you work here now? What do you do? And I said, oh, I'm working in rec therapy. And they go, oh, what's that? I'm like, my God, you're the people that are supposed to refer people to us. So I don't even think that it's, um, um, that we need more support or we need more programs. We need more awareness. Because now that I've gotten into the field, I found out there's literally hundreds of adaptive sports out there for all ability levels, whether it's cognitive, physical, anything. There's so much out there to offer people that the world just doesn't know about. But it seems strange to me that we don't have a greater awareness about this because the Paralympics occur right after the Olympics. So Mm -hmm. you have something that is international that's going on where where would these people all come from i guess if there wasn't already something set in place yeah unfortunately there's not a lot of funding and um, a lot of the adaptive sports are run by nonprofits, so there's not a whole lot of marketing there's not a ton of money for marketing it's do we get another athlete involved or do we get an ad campaign so a lot of times it goes prioritized for the people so if we were able to maybe shift some of the funding away from things that were keeping people in the mindset that their lives were over and towards the things that would put them in a mindset that said your life's going to be different but there's some hope here that yeah the kid that i was working with um his doctor told him you'll never be normal again like seriously he has an implant in his leg in his femur but he can walk he can ride a bike i don't understand why they had to tell him that you know tell him your life's going to be different tell him your life's going to be challenging don't tell them it's over. It is a delicate balance because I was just thinking about a conversation I had uh, with a woman who works in hospice. And she said that on the flip side, patients who have been told by their doctors um, that there's hope that they could live anywhere for up to five years and they find themselves in hospice, they get angry about that piece. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a funny line to have to walk. You know, you want to give hope, but you don't want to give too much hope. It's, yeah, it seems really like situationally dependent and almost an art to that sort of conversation. Yeah, I would imagine the doctors really have to kind of feel out the person or get to know the person um, and what drives them. Everyone said that my rehab was so successful because I'm so stubborn. So pretty much when you tell me, no, you're not going to do that, I'm going to be like, watch me, you know. So. Well, you're, and also the fact that you're an athlete. So maybe not every person that comes in is going to right. want to participate in adaptive sports, but... For those who do, then that's going to really change the way you talk. Right. Well, and the other thing is that through rec therapy, it's not necessarily just adaptive sports. The rec therapy department at the VA has cooking, arts and crafts, a wood shop. Like there's so much to do to stay busy. And they consider it therapeutic activities because you keep your mind engaged, keep your body engaged. Maybe if you had a stroke and you have an arm deficiency, you can start working on some of those motor skills in the shop programs like that. So it's really all encompassing in adapting life. Yeah, I think that's that is important because I I mean having been to physical therapy, if I was given something to do that seemed like it had a point to it, then probably it would mean more to me. Exactly. 
we could meet the same therapeutic goals through certain sports activities as you could through sitting in the therapy room doing little baby exercises that you know you're not going to do at home. They always give those home activities and I have yet to meet a person that actually does them. Tell me about your experience with service dogs. Moxie is, is still hanging out over here with Spencer, our audio producer. She looks pretty mellow. I, I, I'm wondering what kind of an impact she had on your life. She's been absolutely amazing for me. I love that she's got to be touching him right now. She put her paw out on his foot just to hold on. Um, she's been very motivating as well. So on the days when you know, you're supposed to get out and active and do those therapy things, and you really don't feel like it, she'll kind of give me that push, like, all right, let's go. She's, she's taken her ball and, like, held it against my leg, like, get up, come play with me, um, or get her walk. She'll, she'll bounce back and forth and want her walk for the day, so that gets my walk and my step count up. Um, she's been a battle buddy everywhere I go, whether it's through the PTSD or just knowing you have a friend with you. It's a, it's a pretty big deal to have someone that can do that. And then for my seizures and epilepsy, she's able to alert before I have one. So before I got her, I actually had a seizure and face planted into a coffee table and rearranged my face pretty good and had to have surgery. Um, so to have her and to have that comfort to know that nothing bad's gonna happen to me because she's looking out for me. She's a pretty awesome battle buddy. How did you first learn about the availability of service dogs like Moxie? Uh, when I was on active duty, still at the hospital rehabbing, they suggested that a service dog would be beneficial to me. And so we started looking into it and applied to a few agencies, but they typically have about a two-year wait, mostly because that's how long it takes to train a dog. You also, um, when I saw you in the airport a few months ago, and you and I didn't meet, but I met Louie, the dog that was with you at the time, um, you also are involved with training dogs yourself now. Yeah, um, I've seen how beneficial she's been for me and how the service dogs that my friends have have been hugely beneficial to them. And so I know what the power of a dog can do for that, for your life or for the lives of others. And I work for a Labrador breeder and I help with selection. So I get to choose um, which litters and which puppies from those litters have the best aptitude to become a working dog and then work with local agencies or, or even national now to get dogs um, into schools, proper training to become service or therapy dogs for different organizations. And what types of things do you look for as far as aptitude is concerned? Um, a lot of times it's basic temperament tests, um, holding them up and holding them in different positions to see if they're comfortable with you or obedient. Um, you want the one that has a little bit of curiosity and energy, but you don't want like the super headstrong one in the group and you obviously don't want the most timid one. Um, and then we've had a few bloodlines that have multiple dogs that are already certified. So we tend to lean toward that line, knowing that the genetics are very good. Tell me about the U.S. women's para ice hockey team. Um, para ice hockey is the new name for sled hockey. It is a Paralympic sport, although the women's side is not yet participating um, in the games. The men are over there right now getting ready. So hopefully they bring home another goal in, in a week or two. Um, but for the women, we're headed over to the Czech Republic in May for Worlds. We are the defending world champions, so hopefully we can take that back again, beat Canada. Uh, but para ice hockey is basically seated, full-checking ice hockey. Um, even the women's side is full-checking. So you get two short little sticks with spikes on the back end that you push like ski poles, and then you flip down and puck handle with the other end where there's a blade on it. 
Um, we skate with two hockey skate blades, uh, basically bolted underneath our butts, and you balance on that, and that's how you get around. How much time did it take to learn how to do that type of hockey? Oh, I was probably awful my entire first year. <laughs> um, I actually learned about the sport at a VA winter sports clinic. Uh, the rec therapists in the area host a big event every year in New Hampshire for skiing and snowboarding, and then every evening after we're done skiing, they introduce new sports. So they did wheelchair basketball, we learned to kayak in the hotel pool, and the one night was sled hockey. So I tried it out, and I was on the ice for like 20 minutes, and I was terrible, but it was fun. And the fact that it was um, high speed and full contact was really appealing to me for like that competitive, aggressive, aggressive nature. And so the group that ran the event loaned me equipment for about six months, and I went down to a USA Hockey Jamboree, they call it, that they do in Philly every June, and it's basically like a giant camp for the whole nation. Anybody that's interested in sled hockey can come to this week-long camp. And I went and I gave it a shot and the women's national team coaches happened to have been there. So I got invited onto the team from there and the rest is history. How long have you been doing this now? This is, I think, my sixth year. So, so. you said you were terrible the first year. How long yeah. did it take before you actually felt like you had some proficiency? until uh, about this year <laughs> um, no I've usually been just a wing on the team and I work hard I skate hard I skate fast but I've never had really skill with the puck um, and then I started a team up here called the New England Warriors and it's a sled hockey team for disabled veterans um, we actually just won our league last weekend in New Hampshire so that was a blast but working with the guys and having to be a role model for them has helped my puck handling skills uh, because I, I spend most of the game chasing the puck and feeding passes to them and then going and getting it back and trying again and, and things like that. So it's really helped my confidence with the puck as far as passing and shooting and things like that. So that's helped me on the national team quite a bit. Last year I went to the um, pond hockey tournament up in yeah. central Maine and we wrote a story about it for the magazines. And it really struck me uh, how much camaraderie there was in that sport. And these were um, men and women that went all the way up to the older ages. I'm not even sure how old the oldest was, but definitely over 50. And there was such a care for one another and such a love of the sport. Um, is this the same type of thing that you're experiencing now with the, yeah. the hockey that you do? I think with our hockey, there's that same camaraderie like the military. It's another team and the mission depends on each person and each person giving their full effort. So it's very similar to that, that camaraderie and brotherhood. Um, with the women's national team, we're basically like family. The girls call each other and treat each other as sisters, which is awesome. Um, I always had brothers growing up, so now I have a whole team of sisters, which is great. Uh, we do have occasional girl drama, but really not bad, you know, typical stuff like that. But we have so much fun together and we work together despite our disabilities to make everything happen. We went to an escape room two weeks ago when we were in Denver and they're like, oh yeah, the rooms are accessible. It's on the third floor of the building. <laughs> so we had, a, people got carried up the stairs, you know, up three flights of stairs and we were there to do it as a team. You know, we got everybody. That, that's such an interesting thing that here you are, you're a high-level athlete, and at the same time, you have to be um, aware of accessibility. Yeah. Well, accessibility and health even. So for us, you take a normal athlete, and I think we're still working with our coach. She's amazing. 
she knows hockey she's very passionate about all of us um, and and taking care of all of us but each player has a different disability so um, some of us are amputees and some are not but all from different causes and then some of the girls are paraplegic and some are not um, there's different conditions that affect how we play and it took her a really long time to understand that even with mine like I need my medication at a structured time so if all of a sudden we have a, a 10 p.m. practice I'm probably not going to be too with it by the end of practice, but she understands that I need I need that structure, I need that medication. It's not something you consider with able-bodied athletes. With them, it's hydrate, eat, sleep. That's it. Train. With all of us, it's different um, bowel routines, amputee care, wheelchair care. Um, some of the girls that are paraplegics don't have any butt muscles, so what they sit on is very careful. You have to be careful the way you move people. Um, you can't jar anything on someone that's already damaged so we all control the way we move on the ice but off the ice there's so many different variables that we have to be careful of yeah that i mean i hadn't really thought about a lot of the things that that you just said and to have these kind of constantly moving pieces but you also are traveling all over the place this doesn't keep you like just hanging out in your hometown this that you've been all over the country and, uh, and we've been everywhere i'm short eight states still in the u.s but um in the last couple of months we were in new hampshire st louis denver colorado springs florida i'm trying to think where else i've just everywhere vermont massachusetts of course new england and then at the end of next month we're headed to chicago and then Philly, and then Austria, and then we're going over to the Czech Republic for Worlds. So, so how, when you when things are not accessible, when you're in a place that doesn't have an elevator, um, how do you kind of try to communicate those needs? We're all pretty good at going with the flow. Um, it's funny because you'll get new people on the team that haven't traveled much, and they're used to the ADA and where the curb cuts and where the ramps and where's the elevator and the rest of us have traveled around the world so much that we're like the ADA is the Americans with Disabilities Act it's only in America once you get out of the country everything changes and so we're all just used to going with the flow whether it's access problems with the dogs access problems with wheelchairs um, it's amazing how many places we go that have stairs and you'll see everybody like crawling up and throwing each other's wheelchairs up the stairs and we make it happen the girls are really good at adapting. So as we're talking, I'm thinking about younger people who are either born with different abilities or have cancer and they need to have an amputation. And I'm thinking about how inspiring it would be to meet somebody who has been dealing with this and working through these issues. Yeah, we love meeting with folks on our on our team weekends. Whenever there's anybody in the community, they get invited out and they're welcome to come meet the team and stuff like that because it is true. We meet so many people whose parents, like the doctors, aren't sure how hard to push the kids. And I've met kids that have so much more potential than they're currently functioning at because everyone's too afraid to push. Or, you know, not to say helicopter parents, but I'm sure you've heard the term. And it, it's amazing how many kids could be much more independent if the parents just pushed them a little bit. You know, some of the girls, or most of the girls on the team have really been pushed their whole lives, and that's why they've been able to achieve an elite level. It'll push you out of your comfort zone. So if you had any advice for parents of children who are trying to figure out how to negotiate the world? 
just to try to not be so afraid of everything you know give it a shot you haven't really got that much to lose at that point you've already become damaged you know like me trying hockey my parents thought I'd get hurt I can't do it it's dangerous so you know I did a tough mutter this fall and someone asked me how many bones are in your skeleton and I was like I don't know 206 208 something like that they're like no how many are in yours and I was like wow I never even (laughs) considered that turns out I only have 150 of them left but you know you've you've come to a point where challenging what you have left is better off or would leave you better off than being too afraid to risk it. So I wish that more people would just try a little harder in life in general. I think everyone, um, disabled or not, can, can apply that to their lives just to push themselves a little bit more, see what they're capable of. I've been speaking with Christy Gardner, who is a retired Army veteran who was injured overseas in 2006 after recovering from a brain injury. She is now the co-captain of the U.S. women's para ice hockey team, and she's here with her service dog, Moxie. I appreciate all the work that you're doing, and um, it's really an inspiring thing that that you've come here to talk about today, so thank you. You're very welcome. Try to be stubborn. It's worked out in my favor. Dr. Zach Mazzoni, DO, created Dayspring Integrative Wellness in Bath, Maine, with the belief that true health comes from building healthy relationships with your community, with your doctor, and with yourself. As a board-certified family and integrative medicine physician, Dr. Mazzoni and the whole staff at Dayspring are committed to supporting your wellness journey by providing integrative family medical care, osteopathic manipulation, herbal and lifestyle consultations, counseling, and wave therapy. Dayspring offers an innovative membership-based model of healthcare that gives you time together with Dr. Mazzoni to build a personalized wellness plan based on your health goals. Daily access for acute appointments is available, and you can even schedule a secure video conference call in the privacy of your own home. I know Dr. Zach and his family, and I believe strongly in the personalized whole-person approach to health that he provides. This is why I am encouraging you to find out more for yourself by visiting dayspringintegrativewellness.com or by calling them directly at 207-751-4775. Dayspring, wellness the way it should be. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, Art Collector Maine, grownupgirl.com, and by Dayspring Integrated Wellness. Our editorial producer is Kate Gardner. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasick. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Andrew King and Dr. Lisa Belli. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.